Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Hi, I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance for Morningstar, Inc. And I'm Jeff Patak, Global Director of Manager Research for Morningstar Research Services. Our guest on the podcast today is Dr. Anna Maria Lusardi, an authority on financial literacy and financial education. Dr. Lusardi is the Dennett Trust Distinguished Scholar and Professor of Economics and Accountancy at the George Washington School of Business, where she also serves as the Academic Director of the Global Financial Literacy Excellence Center. Prior to joining GW, she taught at Dartmouth College for 20 years. She has also taught at Princeton University, the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy, the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, and Columbia Business School. She received her PhD from Princeton University. Dr. Lasardi, welcome to The Long View. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start by talking about how you go about determining whether someone is financially literate or illiterate. Can you talk about the things that you might test someone on to make that determination? Yeah. Over time, we have measured financial literacy in a variety of ways. I I started working, for example, with Olivia Mitchell from the Wharton School, and we are testing the basic knowledge, the basic, the ABC of personal finance. So concepts like knowledge of interest compounding, inflation, and risk diversification. Over time, though, we have moved also to much more comprehensive measures, for example, incorporating knowledge of basic asset pricing, working of mortgages, and more recently, with the support of the TIA Institute, we have looked at what is called a personal finance index, looking at as much as and as many as eight areas in which people routinely make financial decisions. So concepts like borrowing, saving, consuming, investing, insuring, comprehending risk, asking as many as 28 questions. And so, you know, we have very simple measure, simply three questions, and very comprehensive measure, as many as 28 questions. Okay. So let's talk about how we as a population are doing. In some of the work that you did with Professor Mitchell, you showed that certain segments of our population really don't look good when you run them through this literacy testing. Can you talk about those groups of people that seem to be particularly financially illiterate? Let me start by saying that overall, the numbers do not look good. And we see that even the average Americans, and I have to say, we also look around the world, doesn't know even about these very basic concepts. But not just financial literacy is very low, there are also groups whose knowledge is particularly low. And among those groups, I would uh, put actually women those with low income and low educations and minorities such as African-Americans. We have done very recently actually a report focusing on African-Americans. It came out just last fall. Just to give you some perspective, while overall, for example, the white population only answered about half of the 28 questions, the personal finance index questions. Again, this is not a passing grade. You would get an F if you take my course and you only answer about half of the questions. The number for the African-Americans are only 38%. So some of the groups which are already, I would say, vulnerable in other dimension, maybe economically or so on, they are also vulnerable when it comes to financial literacy. 
So I'm sure we'll talk some more about the groups you mentioned that are more vulnerable, as you put it. But before we do that, to make this even more tangible for our listeners, can you give an example of a question that one of your respondents would be attempting to answer that helps you to draw a conclusion about their levels of financial education literacy? Sure. I'm going to talk about, for example, the big three financial literacy question. In one case, we just ask a simple 2% calculation in the context of interest rate. So we say if you invest $100 at 2% interest rate, at the end of five years, how much you have in the account if you left the money to grow. And we don't ask people to provide us uh, you know, a precise number. We list those numbers. And to make the question very easy, we say, is it more than one or two, one hundred or two? So we don't even test, in a sense, interest compounding, but whether people can do a 2% calculation in the context of interest rate. Another question is about understanding of inflation. And we say, suppose that the inflation is 2% and the interest you earn on your checking account is 1%. At the end of one year, would you be able to buy more or less uh, with the money in your account? Um, So we are trying to test this kind of very basic but yet fundamental knowledge at the basis of financial decision-making. And people struggle with these questions that you just gave examples of, these wouldn't be outliers that, you know, trip up a lot of your respondents. Are these pretty representative of the types of questions that you would be asking that perhaps they would struggle with? So these are the, you know, relatively simple questions. And I have to tell you that even in those two relatively simple questions, only about half of the population can answer them both. There are questions which are, of course, more complex, and we want more complex questions as well, because we want to test whether people are also have much more sophisticated knowledge. So, for example, we ask, uh, what do you think is uh, safer, investing in a single company stock or in a stock mutual fund? So kind of try to assess whether people, first of all, know even what a stock or a stock mutual fund is and what are some of the investment understanding. So, you know, even this simple questions, we find that overall in the U.S., about one-third of the population can answer these three fundamental kind of ABC-type concept of personal finance. How does level of wealth correlate with a level of financial literacy or illiteracy? That's the important question. You know, when we look at financial literacy and how it is linked to important outcomes, and you know, I'm happy to speak more, of course, of uh, uh, research and not just correlation, but financial literacy very strongly correlates with the level of saving and wealth. In other words, it is those who have more financially, were more financially literate who also have much higher amount of wealth, much higher amount of saving, are more likely to plan for retirement, and so on. And they are not simple correlation, but the correlation in the raw data is very strong and very important. And I think it tells the story of why also it's so important today to be financially literate. So you referenced that you've conducted this research globally, not just in the U.S. Can you talk about how rates of financial literacy compare in the U.S. relative to other markets where you've done this research? Mm Mm-hmm. Probably because we were able to design 
three relatively simple questions. It was also possible to add those questions in a lot of other surveys internationally. So we have worked with central bank, regulators, other institutions to be able to add this question in many other countries. We have a project that we call financial literacy around the world or flat world, as it is with the acronym of the project. And when we look at the financial literacy measured by, for example, these three simple questions, we find that the world is flat also when it comes to financial literacy. In other words, other countries as well often display low level of financial literacy. And interestingly, it is the same groups around the countries, and I would say around the world, that display this lowest level of financial literacy. So there is a gender difference in financial literacy around the world. It is true that those which, for example, are minorities or have low income and low educations tend to have low financial literacy. And of course, the young and the old are also those less likely to be financially literate. And this is true overall around the world as well. Of course, there are countries which you know, have higher level of financial literacy overall than potentially others. And among them, we see prominently the Nordic countries, but also countries like Canada, Australia, New Zealand, countries which have a very strong education system or where financial literacy has been added in school a long time ago. So back to the relationship between financial literacy and wealth or level of savings, what is your research suggested? Is it those who possess wealth and, you know, greater savings that they're afforded more plentiful education opportunities or is it they're afforded reps? They get more opportunities to draw on their wealth and and that wherewithal and learn lessons by doing, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is actually a very important question. Where does the causality go, right? So we have actually done a lot of research uh, on this topic and tried to document not just the level of financial literacy, but the consequences of financial literacy and whether and how financial literacy matters. As you can imagine, it's hard to do uh, that analysis because, you know, simple correlation might not tell us the whole story. So, you know, more recently, we have done a kind of a theoretical model trying to add financial literacy like into a simple, in a sense, financial decision-making model. And, you know, our simple story is financial literacy allow people to basically better invest their savings. And the conclusion were very striking, which actually shows that a very large proportion of the wealth inequality close to retirement, as much as one-third, is actually due to financial literacy. There, we don't have a problem of causality because we incorporate is a model that incorporates all of this uh, endogeneity, this learning, and this effect that, you know, indeed people who have more to gain from financial literacy are more likely to invest into it. But, you know, even for us, it was striking just how much financial literacy matters. 
using data set and because we were able to use national surveys, we have also looked very closely at a variety of behavior. So we have looked at how much financial literacy, for example, explain wealth and wealth holdings and try to address the problem of causality, not just by looking at financial literacy per se, which can be endogenous, you know, your financial literacy can change because of your wealth, because of your desire to save, but try to look at people, for example, who were exposed to financial education in school or the workplace. So more, in a sense, like an experiment. And what we found is that financial literacy is a very strong determinant of people being uh, more savvy about their saving, their wealth, and by the way, also their debt and debt management. So one of the behaviors that people who are more financially savvy tend to exhibit is that they invest more in stocks. So can you talk more about that finding, which I know has surfaced in your research, and what you think the reasons are for that, whether it results from a lack of financial education, or is it possible that someone's less likely to invest in stocks because they feel they have less to lose, and maybe they are you know, financially stressed or something like that? Let's talk about that finding. Absolutely. So this is a research we have done, for example, working with the data from the Federal Reserve System in the U.S. where we could have access to how people invest in their pension accounts. But we have done also research internationally looking at the link between financial literacy and investing in the stock market. And there are other studies done in the U.S. and again around the world that shows this very strong correlation indeed that, as you have mentioned, among the fact that the people who are financially literate are much more likely to invest in the stock market. This is actually not a surprising finding because it's the same for education. If you look at just higher education, it is you know disproportionately those who have a college degree that are more likely to invest in the stock market. And interestingly, when you look at financial literacy, it has an effect above and beyond education. So you also need that specialized knowledge in a sense to invest in the stock market. We do think that you know the data speaks of the importance of having that knowledge because after all the stock market is a sophisticated concept. You need to understand you know what it is, how it works, you need to understand the variability and so on. So you know if you are never exposed to financial literacy, this is not such a simple concept. And, you know, in our empirical work, we take into account the many characteristics that people have. So we do account for whether people have wealth, right? So the fact is, even if you look at people which have, you know, the same and potentially higher amount of wealth, the people who have more education, the people who have, you know, higher income, those who have higher financial literacy are much more likely to invest in the stock market. Our intuition is because, you know, they know more and they are better able to take advantage of the opportunity offered by the markets. And by the way, it's true in other situations, you know, the people who, for example, refinance mortgages when interest rate goes down are disproportionately those with higher financial literacy and higher education. So, Knowledge really matters and allows us to take advantage of the opportunity around us. What would you say to the argument that it's not so much a financial education challenge as it is an income equality challenge? And that if you do that sort of leveling, that it would serve to remove 
some of these trends that you've described where those who perhaps have less wherewithal aren't as financially literate and therefore disadvantaged in various ways that you described. If we were to level that out from an income standpoint, is there reason to believe that the outcomes across the income and social spectrum would change markedly? So clearly, if you give people more income, you know, they might indeed be more likely to invest in the stock market. You know, we see this in our data as well, but also financial knowledge has that effect. So we think that that's another channel in which people can operate and make better financial decision. You know, it's clear that, you know, if you don't have, for example, any money to invest, you know, if I give you a lot of knowledge, Right? It's not that you are going to invest nevertheless. So, of course, the economic system, and we always speak in terms of the ecosystem in which people operate, is very important. And, you know, your financial situation is very important for the type of decision you make, but also how you are able to manage the resources that you have is important. And this is, I think, where we'd like to put our attention now that, you know, so much more than in the past, you know, we are asked to make decisions, many more decisions than we were asked before. You know, young people need to make decisions about student loan. Young workers need to make decisions about their pensions. You know, we face very complex mortgages and financial instruments. You know, when we retire, we face very complex decisions about how to accumulate our wealth. You know, that those skills of how to manage our resources are becoming so important, so essential to navigate this ecosystem. So you mentioned that things are getting more complex in terms of our financial system and the various instruments that we all have to navigate. So how about trends in financial literacy since you've been studying this area? Has it gotten worse? Um uh, so we are able to study this in the U.S. because we were able to have question on financial literacy, for example, in the National Financial Capabilities Study. And this has been done every three years, started in 2009. So if I look at the financial literacy in 2009 and then the financial literacy in the latest wave in 2018, I don't see that financial literacy is improving. And this to me is not surprising. In fact, it might even get worse also because the inequality of the population is worse. And so, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it's people with lower income and lower education that uh, tend to have lower financial literacy. But, you know, we have not, irrespective of these major changes that are happening in our financial market, step up much of the effort, for example, to have financial literacy in school or in the workplace. You know, very few states have added financial literacy to their curriculum, yet student loan looms at $1.6 trillion. You know, we have shifted the responsibility to saving and, and invest the retirement saving to workers, yet we don't see a, a lot of initiative necessarily in the workplace. So it's not surprising that you know financial literacy has not improved very much. It's not that people learn necessarily by just watching the world around them. And this is, by the way, true when we look globally. You know, the level of financial literacy is not necessarily higher in the people in the countries with the higher income and the more developed financial markets. You know, there is limited learning by just breathing the air and watching the world around you 
in this very complex world, we need to find a way to provide those skills if we want people to be financially literate. So can you give a couple of examples of what your research has found to be especially successful in imparting the important lessons that are really the bedrock of financial literacy? And maybe we can use a couple of examples that maybe bookend the population of those that you'd be looking to get that education, maybe somebody who's very early in their career just starting out, and then someone who's about to enter retirement. I mean, what are the things that they really need to know, and what is your research suggested is most effective in educating and preparing them? So a lot of our research has been focused, for example, on workplace financial education. So we have done several programs looking, for example, at millennials, women, People contribute, you know, making decisions about their retirement savings and investment. And in all of the projects that we have done, we actually show that not just financial education works or uh, initiative works, but sometimes, you know, how simple or how little you can do to help people make this decision. You know, I want to mention one of the dearest projects I have done, and it's because I've done it in my own institution when I was at Dartmouth College, for example, the vice president of finance and administration called uh, a few people in his office to say, you know, I would like uh, to promote much more retirement savings in our non-faculty population. And what we did, we provided simple planning aid, which listed the step that people had to take in order to make financial decisions. And the way we actually taught to the employees was not just, you know, by lectures or, you know, bringing them back to the classroom or anything like this, but we did it via simple videos and simple stories where, you know, some of these concepts, in a sense, were explained in a very simple way. And according to our test, you know, even this very simple intervention, kind of low cost, limited, had really an impact both on participation and contribution to retirement account. One of the things I've really learned, in particular doing focus group and in that interviews, and many started there, is just how articulate people are in their dreams, their aspiration, what they would like to achieve, but the gulf there is between, you know, those goals and kind of the knowledge requires often to get there. And so, you know, I hope that this financial literacy, this program can really help fill in the gap. In another project that we have done, this time targeting millennials, we just did simple videos. I say simple, but, you know, these were short, you know, they were done with actor where we were very precise and, and tried to be very rigorous in providing the type of information that people needed in order to make uh, saving decisions. And we call that project five step to planning success where these five steps are really that basic and fundamental knowledge that young people require, including, for example, contributing to employer uh, pensions, but in particular if there is a match, and taking advantage of tax favor assets. You know, these were short videos. Again, you know, like the cost was not very high, and the importance of doing it in the workplace is, you know, you have a centralized place and you have a often an institution that people trust. A lot of employees would like to, to get financial information and financial education from their employers. 
And we tested this actually in a very large sample. And we found that not just the young people we had targeted improving their knowledge and self-assessed behavior, but even actually the entire group, the entire sample showed an improvement in both their knowledge and self-assessed behavior. So in talking to Professor John Lynch, who has also studied this area, one concept that he talked about was this sort of just-in-time financial education intervention. It sounds like you're talking about a similar type of intervention, and you think that those sorts of things are the types of financial education that really do work. Is that correct? No, I don't consider just in time necessarily. I actually consider this intervention that we can do in, for example, places where people are. So it's very convenient to, for example, do it in the workplace because people are at work. And I would call them more teachable moments. So we are exploiting, for example, you know, when people enroll, when people participate to some event in order to provide the education. In my view, just-in-time education is too late. If you provide education when people are making the decisions, they have already taken, I think, a lot of steps to get there. And so the decision might not be ideal, and you might do very little with this just-in-time education. Just let me give you a couple of examples. If you give just-in-time education to people that are trying to get a mortgage, So they are sitting there at the real estate office or they are making this decision. Chances are they have already set their eyes and their heart on the wrong house. And, you know, they might not have done any search and they might not calculated, you know, which type of house they can afford. But yet when they get there and you try to actually provide education, you know, they have already made up their mind. Another story could be the student loans. You know, by the time a student might apply to student loan, they have already set their eyes to their colleges. They want to go where their friends go and so on. And so, you know, you are not really able to provide much information. The other problem is often there is not the time, you know, like think of planning for retirement. Where is that time Mm -hmm. where you are provided the information? The time is now. The time is as early as possible. And before people make financial decisions, not after. We need to provide financial education so they elaborate you know, their dream and aspiration that they are able to achieve. So what do you say when we when we spoke to Professor Lynch, one of the things that he pointed to in favor of just-in-time education was this concept of decay, that you can impart a lesson, but if it basically just sits unused for some period of time, it loses its efficacy and its hold and people forget. And so I guess what have you found in your own research that gives you conviction that providing this sort of foundation for investors through education yields good outcomes because it sticks? Mm-hmm. So we redid the analysis that uh, John Lynch did um, you know, in his paper published in 2014. And it's because you know, what we have found, first of all, is that The literature on financial literacy exploded in the past, uh, I would say, 10 years. So his analysis was done on what was at that time a relatively limited amount of uh, studies. In fact, you know, if I look at the paper that he looked at, do the most rigorous evaluation, there are only 13. 
So we have extended the analysis on all these new studies that have been done and a lot has been done in the last six years. And we don't replicate the findings that he had. We don't replicate the fact that financial education doesn't have an effect. Uh, in fact, in all of it's not just our studies, but when we put together all the recent evidence, including the evidence he looks at, but including this very large work which has been done recently, we find that financial education shows uh, quite a strong effect. We also don't find the evidence of decay that he finds in his work. In other words, it's not that our evidence doesn't show any decay, but it doesn't show this very strong decay that he finds. In fact, in our story, we don't find either evidence of uh, decay or no decay. But let me just mention that, you know, education is always like this. You know, I don't expect education to stay the same. If I, if you were to ask my student, not my student of personal finance, but the student who took my macro course, uh, you know, this year, I'm sure that their uh, knowledge has decay. But it doesn't mean that you know we shouldn't teach macro, or I should teach macro with just in time, so they get you know bits and pieces of information as they go through life. I mean, a lot of the knowledge that we have, almost any knowledge, I mean, I can test you on any of the courses you have taken. I'm pretty sure that by now you don't remember them very well. <laughs> Again, it doesn't mean that they are not helpful. You know, like they provide you this tool that, you know, then you can use later on um, to, uh, you know, to articulate or so on. You know, if you go back to your French, it might come back to mind. If you go back to your math, uh, it might uh, come back. And, you know, you still have a tool that you can use. I also think this is related to, you know, the way in which people think we teach personal finance, that, you know, we only explain what a mortgage is or what a checking account is. You know, like the description of a checking account belongs in a history course. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't teach, I don't, I don't teach anything that you can Google. In my course, I teach how to make financial decisions. And, you know, people probably, in particular, students now are making financial decisions all the time. So I think, you know, we are going to exercise our muscle a lot. And that's why I think, you know, we don't see that strong decay in financial knowledge, given that we make financial decisions every day. Having said that, of course, it's important to have experience and, and the experience, you know, allow us to be fresh and know some of this topic and continue to exercise our knowledge. So speaking of actually teaching financial education, let's talk about balancing the more sort of conceptual knowledge alongside the very tangible sort of information that you might choose to impart. It sounds like you would favor more the tangible takeaways. That's what you think people should seek to impart when trying to improve levels of financial literacy. So the way I teach personal finance, I actually try to teach the basic of financial decision making. So I teach the concept of that so that people can make their own financial decisions. You know, a lot of people and also the theory suggests that there are behavior that are similar to everybody, you know, and that's why, in a sense, some people feel like, you know, how about rule of thumbs? Mm-hmm. You know, how about teaching those? 
clearly there are concepts that are fundamental and useful to everybody. One suggestion is start saving as early as possible. Use time in your favor. Diversify your portfolio. Contribute to your retirement account up to the match. Be careful about the effect of inflation because if you leave the money under the mattress, you know, inflation is going to make you poorer over time. So there are things that are absolutely universal and that everybody in a sense should do and everybody should be careful about. But overall, personal finance is personal and people should, you know, decide according to their own financial circumstances. You know, personal finance is like a dress. It should fit you well. One size doesn't fit all. So, you know, rules like save 10% are probably too much for some and too little for others, and they might not fit a person's financial situation. So in my course, you know, I teach to, you know, make sure that people are able to make the best decisions that are suitable to their own preferences and financial circumstances. So given that, do you think one-on-one financial tutoring is superior to, say, teaching financial literacy in a classroom setting? So I actually think personal finance is a course that you can uh, teach and, you know, you can teach in uh, in the high school and in college. You know, a one-to-one is always useful, but we don't need to do the one-to-one my objective is really to make uh, personal finance to be a regular course uh, at every university and to make a regular course in high school and even in elementary school. So that's, I think, is the ideal setting where people can learn. So when you're in a classroom setting, acknowledging that you know, sometimes these lessons and teachings have the most uptake when they've been sufficiently personalized. What have you found to be successful in making sure that you're imparting these lessons in a way that really connect with those who are sitting in on your class or or others that you've observed? So first of all, I have uh, incorporated a lot of my research into my teaching So, for example, because of uh, I'm aware of the gender difference in financial literacy, and so I motivate my class in ways that appeal to both the male and female student. So, for example, I know that language, the language of finance, is particularly, I would say, foreign to women. And so I start my class by saying, you know, we start in plain English and we are going to build the language of finance. And this is actually one way in which I engage both my female and a male student rather than going in and, you know, starting with, uh, in a sense, sophisticated concept. The other thing is um, very important that, you know, personal finance is not about saving more and borrowing less. It's about achieving your dream, achieving your objective. So when my student asks, what is this course about? Actually, you know, the best way I can describe it, this is a happiness project. Mm. You know, this is how you can be able to achieve your objective and be financially safe and financially secure. So, you know, motivating, providing example, making sure that I take 
into account the differences among the students and you know what are some of also the decisions that they are going to be making is very important. By the way, people think that students are not interested in this topic or they are not interested in finance. And this is you know, certainly not true. And it's also not true that students are only interested in student loan or in decisions that are, you know, the one that they have to make. You know, they are certainly interested in figuring out the world around them and how to navigate that world and how to be able to be financially fit through their life. A philosophical question is, if we note that people are systematically undereducated when it comes to financial matters, is there a role for policy to step up and provide more defaults that would help short circuit some of the bad behaviors that can get people into financial trouble? So, I mean, maybe building off the success of defaulting people into target date funds within their 401ks, for example, and defaulting them in at a set percentage of their salary. Absolutely. Uh, You know, we have always to think of the ecosystem. I I think there is an important role to make the world, in a sense, better suitable for, you know, what is best for people. So why should the default be zero savings? And we should, like, simplify, we should provide, in a sense, uh, suggestions, we should make a decision be easier to make. You know, there is an important role for a choice architecture that I think facilitates decision-making in the best interest of individual, like there is a role for regulation. You know, so these are very important parts, but I think there is also a role for financial education. You know, they shouldn't be seen as substitute. They should be seen as complement. And I underlie the word complement because often I think we have done only one thing, you know, often we only do regulation or we only want to do, for example, default. You know, if I look at the state of retirement saving now, we have done a lot about defaulting people into retirement account and, for example, also having them invest in target date funds and so on. But again, this is not enough. One size doesn't fit all. People are not the same. You know, if you default them at 3% into a retirement account and in a target dates funds, and they don't even know the difference between bonds and stock, first of all, they might stick at this very low, for example, contribution. You know, if the stock market goes down, they might be very uh, worried and they might sell exactly when there is a loss. And then when people change jobs, they might withdraw those retirement savings. So, you know, we need to in this complex world, complement all of this with education. I always give the analogy that, you know, we need to think of an ecosystem when we think of financial literacy. And I think financial literacy is the water in that ecosystem. You know, if there is too low, little water, too low a water, things cannot flourish. Things cannot grow. And even you can put a lot of regulation, you can put a lot of choice architecture, but things can dry up and people might end up not being in a good financial situation. Let's say I'm a financially savvy person listening to this podcast and I want to try to improve my community by teaching financial concepts. What do you think would be the best use of my time? I would say two things. First of all, I would say become an advocate of financial literacy in your local school. 
I think this is great because first of all, you are going to prepare you know, the next generation to the different financial world that they are going to face. And also the school is you know, such an important part of the community that sometimes, you know, in particular if it is, let's say, in a school in a low-income neighborhood, potentially that knowledge, that information provided by trained teacher might also trickle back to the parents. And so not only you'll be you know, better able to equip the young people, but this might even go back to the community. The other things, and this is actually what we have done in Italy, where I direct the Financial Education Committee, I would say also speak to the city council. You know, in Italy, we have found that the mayor of some small city have come to us and said, you know, we have several problems in our community. You know, we have several people that uh, go into financial trouble. They are in financial distress and so on. And how can we help them? How can we prevent some of this behavior? The nice things about the city council is they really have a handle on the population, more on their community. They can organize things in the community. And uh, that would be, I think, a very useful way in which you can improve your own community. Going back to the school setting, one common way of teaching children, high school children oftentimes, about stock market investing is the stock market game, where kids pick a company to follow, to invest in. What do you think of that as a strategy? I'll reserve my own judgment. I want to hear what your thoughts are on that stock market game that's so common in schools. So, you know, personal finance is not just about investing. So I just want to make that clear that, you know, sometimes we identify too much personal finance with just investing and in just investing in the stock market. So I find that, you know, this is a part of personal finance, but is kind of only one part. Overall, I think there are good things about that. I mean, I like the idea of teaching with games because I think it takes away you know, the sentiment of, uh, you know, finance being potentially difficult, not fun, and so on. And so that would be one way in which you can take that away. The other reason why I like games is uh, that, you know, you can learn, in particular, if there is a repetition, you know, better because, you know, sometimes you wouldn't otherwise be exposed to that. And judging from, a, you know, this is not a stock market game, but there are institutions like, for example, the Ariel Academy in Chicago, which has shown that by exposing these young African-American kids in this low-income community, you find them, you know, really empowered by that knowledge. So there are good opportunities in using games, in using the stock market. Again, the stock market, as I mentioned earlier, is a very sophisticated, difficult, complex. And if you are a person that lives you know, in a family that you know, has never invested in the stock market, doesn't know much about the stock market, this can be helpful. But this is only one component of a personal finance course. And I think, you know, personal finance, this could be maybe one part of personal finance, but hopefully not the only part. People need to learn a lot of other concepts, not just investing in the stock market. I also wanted to ask you, what has your research shown has been most effective in maybe imparting a lesson 
of the importance of having an emergency savings fund, sort of a rainy day fund. One of the things that we probably unmistakably found as practitioners or researchers is that there's such a thing as a chain reaction, right, where somebody doesn't have sufficient emergency savings and so they end up rating their retirement plan, which then basically does a number on their retirement preparedness from which they might not recover. And so it seems like that's a pretty important lesson to impart. What has your research shown to be particularly effective in imparting it? So first of all, our research has documented uh, over time what you have mentioned, which is this financial fragility of people. So we had designed a question many years ago uh, together with Peter Tufano, a former professor at uh, HBS, and tried to assess indeed whether people had precautionary saving. And so we asked this uh, kind of simple, but it turns out sophisticated question because he's able to really assess the state of the balance sheet, which is the confidence that people have to come up with $2,000 in 30 days. And what we found is that indeed such a large proportion of the U.S. population don't have, in a sense, those precautionary savings or don't even have like the capacity to come up with those uh, savings apart from doing something kind of very dramatic like selling their possessions or going and borrow using payday lenders and so on. And I do think that there are lots of consequences of doing so. In our research, I actually find that there is a very strong correlation between financial literacy and financial fragility. So again, it is those which have higher financial literacy that are much more likely to be able to have the capacity to face a shock. And this is you know, again, important, you might think surprising because, you know, this is more uh, to do with the kind of day-to-day financial management and liquidity. And you might feel that, you know, if people have faced a shock, then they should have, in a sense, an incentive to really avoid that situation again. But I think that even in simpler potentially financial decision, this is certainly a simpler financial decision than investing in the stock market, right? Or saving for your retirement or calculating how much you might need to save. Even in those day-to-day financial decision and management of your liquidity, financial literacy seem to be so important. In my class, I talk a lot about the importance of having that buffer stock of saving and the consequences that might bring about not having it. So your research points to there being a definite connection between levels of financial illiteracy and retirement unpreparedness. And one piece of your research that really stuck out to me was how people seek information. So people who are less financially literate are more likely to kind of rely on the friends and family network versus going out and looking for information from perhaps more reliable sources. Can you talk about the finding there and how that could be addressed through education? Yeah, that's a very important point. You know, we found this over and over that when it comes to financial literacy or illiteracy, I mean, it operates in many ways, right? It operates potentially with the fact that, you know, you don't provide or you don't set aside a stock of savings in case of an emergency. You know, you might not save for retirement. You might not manage that well. But it also it's related to who you consult for your financial decision, the type of sources of information you go to. 
know, the fact that people, in particular lower financial literacy people, consult disproportionately family and friends as the problem that potentially those family and friends have the same type of information or the same type of knowledge that they have. So is not very augmenting or is not very helpful potentially. We also found, connected to the same point, that it is disproportionately those who have higher financial literacy, the one who actually consult a consultant or who get the professional advice. So financial literacy is not a substitute for financial advice. It's actually a complement. And, you know, potentially it's the people who have more knowledge, the one who are better able to get a good advice and, and really take advantage of the advice of a good advisor. And this is, again, another channel. It's another you know, important reason why we do need that financial education. You know, it's not that people are going to otherwise buy it necessarily in the market. And they might end up, we might end up in this situation where, you know, many of the people who in a sense, do not have the knowledge, do not acquire it also because the people around them might not be the best one to provide knowledge and advice. Well, Dr. Lasardi, this has been a fascinating conversation. We really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. I've learned a lot. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you. Have Thank a good you. day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us on The Long View. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to and rate The Long View from Morningstar on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Christine underscore Benz and at S-Youth1, which is S-Y-O-U-T-H and the number one. Finally, we'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or a guest idea, please email us at thelongview at morningstar.com. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analyses, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.